Hi, welcome back to the Downtown Den and uh, in our latest Meet the Partner podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Graeme Vidler, who is the Chief Executive of CPT, which stands for the Confederation of Passenger Transport. Um, Much more importantly, um, Graeme deals with our buses, uh, which perhaps uh, is seen by some people as the Cinderella service of our public transport system. But I'm sure once we've had the conversation with Graeme, you'll start to see why that certainly won't be the case as we move forward and we increasingly start to talk about the net zero agenda. So Graeme, welcome to the downtown den. Thank you, Frank. Good to be here. Yeah, good to see you. So tell us, first of all, before we get into the latest job, the new role or the relatively new role that you've got, um, where you've come from, your background, your career journey to date. Yeah, I've, I've been in this post for four years now. Uh, before that, uh, a, a mixed bag of, of jobs over the years. Uh, I started out as a researcher in the House of Commons, working for, for various MPs in and around the run up to the 97 election in particular, which is a time I remember really fondly as a really exciting time working in Parliament. Since then, I've worked for uh, two other trade associations, both in the pension space. Uh, I also worked for the government's auto-enrolment pension scheme, NEST. I was one of the team that that set that up back in the 2000s. also head of policy at which for a spell back in the 1990s. So lots of varied jobs, but I think the thing that has kind of brought them together as I get towards the peak of my career, I hope, uh, is is this desire to, to, to really pick up an industry and speak for it and make sure that everybody out there understands what a particular industry, whether it's you know, pensions as it used to be or buses and coaches as it is now, really understands it and it really sings out a bit more than it otherwise would. Mm. Uh, and I suppose that that's where I will come in in terms of the story of bus. I mean, my dad, I was saying to you, off air, my dad was a bus driver. Uh, and so, you know, I went through the period where it was nationalised bus service to deregulated bus services and have always been keenly interested to see how that service progressed and was working in that new sort of system. Um, And of course, we now have this whole new arrangement of regional mayors having more and more powers and responsibilities over the bus service. Um, But I guess that I'm fairly unusual in showing an interest in buses because it seems to me that almost on a daily basis, there's conversations about the rail. Now that's not always positive, but rail certainly is the public transport mode is seen as the one that is, if I can use this phrase, sexy. Um, Is that a fair reflection, do you think, in terms of where the national debate is? You know, it's rail, rail, rail. And oh, oh, by the way, we've got, we've got some buses over here as well. Yeah, I think that is fair. I mean, Buses account for something like two-thirds of all public transport journeys, four billion journeys a year. They're a huge part of the nation's infrastructure. But you're right, they tend not to get written about or talked about or discussed in in Parliament to anything like the same extent as trains do. Um, For better or for worse, and whatever you think of everything else he did, Boris Johnson did start to change that during his tenure as Prime Minister. And I think we had for a while somebody who genuinely understood the potential role of buses uh, and started to lay out working with the industry 
a, a future path, what he called the National Bus Strategy, which actually could start to give bus services the the profile and the value and, and importantly, of course, the investment that we really need to fulfil our full potential. Obviously, we, we've lost that with successive prime ministers, but it's our job representing the industry to make sure that more people, whether they use the bus on a day-to-day basis or not, understand that millions of people do and how we can make services better for them and ultimately produce better cities and a better nation. And in terms of business, because you mentioned, I mean, I didn't realise the scale, 4 billion passengers a year, did you say? 4 billion journeys. Yep. Um, now, a lot of those journeys will be people going into work. So uh, again, where business leaders tend to get exercised in terms of campaigns and lobbying and, and we get approached as a business organisation, you know, to support HS2, support Northern Power Rail. But my bet will be, given that statistic, that at least as many people, if not more, travel to work by bus. Oh, ab- absolutely. And and it, it's true everywhere across the country. And if you're running, you know, for example, a hospitality business, I, I, th- I think you want to think about the role of bus in, a, in at least two senses. You know, one, how are your staff getting to work? You know, what, what's the availability of a reliable bus service that gets them to work on time, reliably, and, and, and happy and ready to work, you know? But also you need to think about your customers and, and how your customers get into you. Because one of the great myths of city centres is that it's only people who drive in who've got loads of money to spend. And, it, and it's absolutely not true. You know, people who come on bus, people who come on coach spend just as much as people who come by car, sometimes more. And I think we've got a particularly important role to play in the nighttime economy as well as the retail economy. Absolutely crucial to getting people out and about and and using hospitality and driving those people's businesses. Mm. And I guess that in terms of, you know, you talked about people coming into work and uh, on the bus and so on. We've also talked about the fact that rail tends to dominate the conversation. But could that be because so many people struggle with the train service at the moment? And so they're in the news for all the wrong reasons. And then there's a demand to make the train services better. And politicians and decision makers feel there's a need to start to address that. Whereas buses tend to be more reliable, do tend to run on time, do tend to get people to work. Uh, at the right time and so on and so forth. Would that be a fair reflection of, of one of the reasons at least? We, we, we have a slightly different challenge with buses. You're, you're, you're absolutely right that buses tend to be much more punctual than, than trains do. Uh, and, and also when they're not punctual, it impacts fewer people at a time. So, you know, a, a, a Vanti train going down from Liverpool to London affects hundreds of people at a time, whereas a bus doesn't, obviously. The, the challenge we have really is that we've, over the years, we've progressively changed our timetables to almost build in lateness. You know, if you, if you look at a typical city centre Germany, journey in Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, London, wherever, something that took you 30 minutes 20 years or so ago probably takes you 45 minutes now. And and we're punctual because we've adapted our timetables and and accepted that it's going to take 50% longer to get from A to B than it used to. And that's one of the big things, I think, that, that holds us back. I think if we could be that little bit quicker 
if we had that little bit more priority on city streets, then it would be even better off than it currently is for people. And that's about infrastructure, isn't it? And famously, we're sat in Liverpool. We operate, obviously, downtown and business right across the country. Many people listening to this podcast will be in cities where they still have bus lanes. Uh, Bizarrely, Liverpool did away with their bus lanes, gosh, about seven or eight years ago, I think it was. Um, But I presume that as we start to move into this conversation, as we increasingly are of net zero, then not only will infrastructure and bus lanes come back into the conversation in every city, in every town, but also people will start to look at how the bus can contribute to ensuring that local authorities, regional authorities, cities, city regions hit those targets that they've been set. And I know again that there's lots of investment going into the bus uh, fleet, which will make buses even more environmentally friendly as we move forward. Yeah. And, you know, it's every local authority in the country, I'm sure I'm right in saying, has declared a climate emergency and they're they're putting together a plan to deal with that climate emergency. What what some of the simplest, most important, most impactful things you can do change the way in which people travel. Uh, and, And I think a successful local authority looking to get people to use their cars a little bit less and to use the bus or the train or cycling and walking a little bit more needs to do it in two phases really firstly you make you need to make the alternative really good so you need to make sure that the bus service or whatever it is is you know something that people would choose rather than people something something that people have to use uh, and then you can think about the the other the other part of the equation, the, the stick that goes alongside the carrot. And you can say to people, well, actually, we've got this great bus service here that you can use. It gets you there really quickly because you've got a dedicated bus lane. You can charge your phone while you're on it. You can use free Wi-Fi. It's a, it's a premium quality, clean experience. You'll really like it. And we're going to charge you a little bit more if you choose not to do that, but you choose to to drive in a in a vehicle that's carrying one or two people. So, so I think we are going to see lots more driven by local authorities of encouraging people to use the bus a little bit more and encouraging them to use, leave their car at home a little bit more often. And you're quite right to say that the quality of the bus product is is developing all the time you know lots of us i think carry around memories of what buses were like when we were children you know whether that's the conductor coming along and selling you the ticket or the the diesel fumes pumping out the back of the vehicle it just ain't like that anymore and if you go on a bus pretty much anywhere in the country you'll find a, a much, much better experience in, t- in terms of the, the ride quality, in terms of the things you can do while you're on the bus. And, and here in Liverpool, as you said, Frank, we're recording in Liverpool today, some of the new hydrogen buses that are being rolled out are absolutely world-class. I mean, they, they are among the best buses available anywhere in the world. And I, and I really would urge people to, to go out and try for themselves. Yeah, and that's the point that, I wanted you to make actually in terms of the difference of experience that the bus is now to back in the day. And as I mentioned, my my old man was a bus driver, so I was often sort of going around uh, with, with him on the bus. And I have to say, you know, thinking back to the journeys that people were on then, 
in comparison to what you're on now, and I've seen the, the new hydrogen buses, for, for example, then it's night and day, isn't it? I mean, and as you say, Wi-Fi connected, all that sort of stuff. Uh, it really is a 21st century service now, isn't it, the bus? Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I grew up in London and sort of my earliest and, and fondest memories, actually, I got up to see me nan on the number 25. Uh, and on a, on a cold day, on a rainy day, the bus would steam up. You couldn't see out the windows, but it was <laughs> yeah. this wonderful sort of warm cocoon. Um, and now I take my own children on the bus. I, I live in York now, and uh, we use the park and ride buses a lot in particular. And, and the boys, they're, you know, they're, they're not sort of just playing up to me because, you know, I, I work in the bus industry. They will genuinely say to me, this is really nice, Dad. I've got I've got a great Wi-Fi signal. It's a beautiful view. Um, I can charge my phone while I'm on it. Let's do this again, Dad. I, I don't want to drive to football training next week. Take me on the park and ride bus. And and I think you know if anybody went out and tried the bus service now, particularly people who've not tried it for twenty or thirty years, perhaps, I think they would see a service that is much much better, much much modern, much more modern than than their experience might suggest. Now, you mentioned earlier um, Boris, and he had a national bus strategy. Um, was that anything to do with the fact that he just wanted Boris buses all over the country, I wonder? <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the alliteration always seems to play, doesn't it, with, with Boris's bikes and Boris's buses, uh, Boris's parties. Oh, no, that doesn't work. Sorry. Um, so we had a national bus strategy. Is that gone or is it still in play? We, we've still got a national bus strategy. Uh, it's being delivered in quite a piecemeal fashion at the moment. So over the last two years, local authorities have had to work with bus operators and local businesses to pull together what's known as a bus service improvement plan. They handed all those in about 18 months ago, uh, and about 30 of them have been funded by government. So that's, you know, that's great if you live in Norfolk. It's not so great if you live in Suffolk because you've got nothing. It's great if you live in West Yorkshire. It's not so good if you live in South Yorkshire. So at the moment, we've got this real sort of patchwork quilt of some areas are being funded to invest in things like lower fares, higher frequency, bus priority, all of the things that really matter to passengers. But most of the country isn't benefiting. And when you look at how much it might take to finish the job, uh, it would cost probably about six or seven billion. So if, if, if you look at all of the investment that local authorities collectively asked for, about two billion or so of it is funded so far. There's another six or seven billion unfunded. That buys you about 30 miles of HS2 as a comparison. So improved bus services in every single community in England uh, is the same price as, as about 30 miles of HS2. <laughs> and that's a massive comparator, isn't it? And a good one. But I think the, the other thing I'd say is that, you know, in terms of being able to negotiate those business improvement plans or bus improvement plans, is that as we have devolution and we have more responsibility, more powers, and hopefully more resources, going to regional mayors, that should improve. Um, I, I suppose I put the question to you, Graham. Are you looking forward to having that sort of engagement at a regional level? Or do you think that we may end up with this patchwork quilt approach to bus, which will just make things a bit of a nightmare for, 
for, for people like you? So on, on, a, on a professional level, I'm really looking forward to the change because I think we are on the cusp of a big change in the way in which bus services are funded and organised. Uh, and that change is going to be driven by devolution. Uh, and it's going to involve working a little bit less in Westminster and quite a lot more in the rest of the country. And, and for somebody who, you know, who, who works in a trade association, representing my industry, engaging with people about the, the wonders of our industry, that, that's a great thing. We've got more people to talk to. We've got more people to try and influence and, and, and work with. So on that professional level, it's really exciting. But I do worry that we'll end up with with a big gradient between, you know, let's say on the on the one hand, the combined authorities who've got the resource, who've got the skills, who've got the experience, and some of your shire authorities who over the course of the last 10 to 15 years have pretty much been hollowed out in terms of their public transport experience. Uh, and, and those places are are less well equipped at the moment to deliver on, on bus or any other form of transport, really. A part of our role, I think, is going to have to be to help them, those authorities develop their skills as well as, as we go along, or otherwise we do risk ending up with a place where your, your buses are absolutely great in Greater Manchester, but you go across the border into Lancashire and, and, and they're falling behind, or they, they risk falling behind. The absolute opposite of levelling up, I guess. Um, but you mentioned earlier about the nighttime economy and, and again, how important that is becoming, particularly to cities, but also to town centres. Uh, and then you've mentioned shires, so that immediately uh, turns my attention to rural areas. And, and you know, I, I was based up in Lancashire for a long time as a politician. One of the challenges we always had was services to rural areas, not just bus, um, but obviously bus was included in that menu of things that people wanted better offering of. So when people talk about why don't we have as many buses running of an evening, why don't we have as many buses going to Bernaldswick as we do to Liverpool or Manchester? What's the answer to that, Gray? Well, Bus's real strength is moving lots and lots of people from roughly point A to, to roughly point B. And, and if roughly point A and roughly point B are in a built-up urban area where you've got lots of people, the chances of finding people who want to make the same sort of journey as you are really, really high. And so bus performs at its absolute best. The, the more you move out of urban areas and the less dense your population, the fewer people you've got to go on any particular service. And if you look at what's happened in rural areas over the last 15 years, we, we, we got to this situation, you know, perhaps in the, the 2000s where, where the typical um, solution in a, in a village was to have one big double-decker bus turn up every day going in each direction. And, and it was funded by the local authority. Uh, it was provided by operators, my members, and it was barely used by people in the local village because, you know, who wants to go at 9.45 in the morning and come back at 3.45 in the afternoon if that's the timetable it happens to be on? It, it just doesn't work. Over the, the, the decade of austerity, as local authority budgets were, were pinched, 
even that bus disappeared because lots of local authorities took money away from supporting public transport because they had and still have statutory duties on things like adult social care that, that take priority. So we're now left in a, in, a, in a state where there are too many communities across the country which are left behind in terms of their public transport links. And I think we really need to urgently address that. Um, we've been looking, for example, at um, Gordon Brown's commission on the, the future of the UK, which talks about things like how can you offer a, a minimum service guarantee uh, on, on a variety of things, but of interest to us, obviously, in terms of a bus service. C- can you specify what a community should expect? Then as central government, can you hold local authorities to account to deliver it? We think that's a really interesting idea, and it's one that we want to, to explore further. The answer will often be a bus, but it needn't be a bus. You know, it, it might be a, a shared community taxi which takes people from a village to uh, a nearer, larger village where you do have a more frequent bus service running. Um, but at the moment, bus services, public transport in general, aren't really delivering for people in rural communities and not just rural communities actually so sometimes the smaller towns or even the suburbs of of larger cities just aren't getting enough public transport and and i think it's something we urgently need to address we want to address it as an industry obviously and i think government needs to address it because as we've as we've talked about getting more people on public transport is going to be an essential part of the the net zero mix Mm. Uh, and ultimately you, you know, I always remind people of this when they're complaining about services not being provided, whether it be bus or other. You do have to make a return on the investment. And so, as you say, if you know you've got a bus, you're not in an expensive vehicle to run, uh, going out to a, a rural village and you're picking up one or two people, then it's just not going to be cost effective. And I know that word subsidy is often um, sort of, People don't like to hear the S word, you know, politicians don't like subsidising stuff. But ultimately, for me, it's about either investing in people's quality of life or not. So it's not a subsidy, it's an investment. And as you say, I think thinking about things in a smarter way, how can we develop those services uh, and doing that by engaging and working in partnership, That's that's got to be the way forward, hasn't it? Yeah. And, and you know, like most industries, we we hate the subsidy word. It's not it's not what we want. We don't want to be subsidised to do what we do. But there are now large parts of the country, I think, where passengers need to see more investment in public transport services, or they simply won't have any public transport services because 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 as you say, someone's got to pay. The the price for individual passengers to pay would be too high in in many rural locations because there simply aren't enough people travelling. So we as taxpayers need to make an investment not just in the journeys of those people but in our national journey towards net zero. You mentioned earlier you worked in Westminster and and I I had that uh, that privilege for a while as well. Um, around a similar time, actually, I was sort of ninety two to ninety nine. So, uh, and it was quite exciting. I mean, that ninety two to ninety seven period was was always a story, wasn't it? Because John Major's government had quite a tight majority, uh, and then you had Tony Blair sort of coming through as new Labour leader. So loads of excitement and so on. Um, and John Prescott was. Uh, 
about to become Deputy Prime Minister in the 97 election. Of course, John had a massive passion for transport and for buses, actually. And I remember them talking about the thing that Yes Minister always used to take the piss out of, which was a national integrated transport system. I don't know if you ever saw the programme where Sir Humphrey is telling the minister why that is an absolutely daft idea to take on because it's such a complex mix of transport systems. You've got the bus, you've got the rail, you've now got trams. The question I'm going to put to you though, Gray, is... Now that we are moving to a form of devolution in many of the places where you will operate, it seems to me that integration of those transport systems actually ought to be easier. Because if you can have those conversations at a local level, say, okay, if you can get bus from A to B and the trams will move at that time, blah, 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 with a little bit of variation and flexibility in times, because as you say, things happen and delays occur. Is that something that you think is going to get easier as we modernise our governance procedures or am I just living in fairy dairy land no, and no, Sir no, Humphrey I mean, was right all along? That, that <laughs> national integrated transport system, it's got a problem with the acronym quite apart from anything else, hasn't it? But uh, it, it, it is hard to imagine uh, and you need to think about what's the the right unit over which you, you sensibly integrate transport it's probably not national. It's probably not even, you know, the sort of transport for the North scale. But when you start to think about city regions or, or some of the unitary authorities, that feels like uh, more ripe territory to do it. And, and at the moment, we spend a lot of time in the industry uh, debating with local leaders the, the pros and cons of different regulatory models. You know, do, do we want to go down the franchising route for bus services? Uh, or do we want to go for a more partnership-based approach, which is what we have in most places now? And, and I think what I hear back consistently from local leaders is we can, we can do pretty much everything we want through a partnership approach, except for integrate with other modes of transport. And, and it feels like that prize of integration, which clearly is really, really vital if you're running a city region and, and trying to maximise your your benefit across all modes, is the thing that's driving a lot of the desire for regulatory change at the moment. So we'll work with that because we think that's where the, the future of bus in city centres in particular lies. Uh, and I think it's a, a much more fruitful basis to do it than trying to do it on a, on a national level all at once. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, you said you've been in the job four years. Um, and so I'm going to ask you what progress you think has been made during that time uh, and what progress you'd like to see over the next four years. That's a great question, Frank. And, and my four years, as, as people keep reminding me, has been a very, very particular four years. We, we spent two years of it out of circulation to some extent or another through the, through the pandemic. Um, but from a professional point of view, it gave us as a trade association the chance to rebuild our reputation a little bit. Uh, and in particular to show our members what we could deliver uh, and also to build some relationships that perhaps had fallen down a bit with with national governments in, in London, in Edinburgh and in Cardiff. So so in a sense, we, we've achieved 
quite a bit as an organisation and we've raised the profile of buses and coaches in, in Westminster and elsewhere. And I think that's a really good place to start from. Uh, what I want to see over the next four years, uh, I think three things I would prioritise. Uh, one, I would like to see a much more uh, forward-looking debate about how we get to net zero. So at the moment, the government's transport decarbonisation plan is sort of pre it's sort of dependent on a, well, if we all switch to electric cars, it will all be fine. Uh, and, and if we make all the buses electric, it will all be fine. Well, actually, that's not enough. And, and the, the Climate Change Committee says in terms it's not enough. And you have to get people to change their travel behaviour as well. So we want to be engaged in a debate with national and local leaders uh, about how you do that and how you have the the bravery to move forward and to say to people, do you know what, in future, you're going to have to use your car a little bit less, but we've got all these great alternatives for you. Um, secondly, I, I've mentioned local leaders there. I, I think my second ambition for the industry over the next four years is to replicate the success that I believe we've had nationally at local level, starting naturally with the combined authorities, because that's where the greatest potential is both for for them as local leaders and for us as, as an industry. So really important that we have the sort of constructive uh, partnership dialogue that we have with central government. And the third thing I'd like to see is a closer engagement with business. So, so business will have its, uh, business people will have their own net zero programs. They'll, they'll have their own ambitions and plans to get from where they currently are to, to net zero operations. We'd like to be talking, as we are with the, the NHS at the moment, for example, about the role that buses and coaches can play in that. What more can we do to get your workers to, to work on time and in a, in a carbon neutral, zero carbon way? So, so I think over, over the coming years, let's have a proper grown-up, wide-ranging conversation about what it will take to get to net zero. I want to, to lead the industry into a much closer engagement with local leaders, and I'd love us to be talking much more closely to business about how we can help them fulfil their priorities. Brilliant. And I, I think, you know, what I would say is that you guys could really help with some of those big challenges that you've talked about today, particularly around net zero, which is going to impact not just on politicians, it's going to impact, as you mentioned there, on business leaders as well. We've all got a role and a responsibility as far as that agenda is concerned. It seems to me that, you know, you people are the experts and can provide some of the solutions to those challenges. Um, and so, you know, I know that, you're open to conversations, you're open to engagement. Um, and I think it'd be worthwhile, um, not just politicians, but business leaders as well, invest in at least some time to, to have some conversations with you. Be open for that, Graham, I guess. Oh, absolutely. At, at the moment, there are lots of local bus companies who engage, for example, through their local chamber of commerce that or their business improvement district, that sort of engagement. But uh, beyond that, all of us at CPT would love to to talk more to business. We, we think there's much more engagement and constructive working we can do together. And I think strategically, you guys are the best place in terms of having that conversation. Yes. 
uh, because absolutely talk, talking to us means talking to the the industry as a whole. We represent over ninety five percent of buses on the UK's roads. Uh, we've got the ear of central government, uh, and increasingly we're going to be focused on getting the the ear of local leaders as well. It's been great to talk to you about the buses. Uh, we're going to get the ball out for a second because uh, we always do this with our guests. We pick up on an interest that they have outside of their industry sector. And you're a big West Ham fan. I certainly um, am. So uh, I'm an Evertonian. So we're one of the few clubs that are below you in the Premier League <laughs> at this moment in time. Um, but let's not talk about this season. I think West Ham are going to be fine, actually, after yesterday's results at Arsenal. Um, but... Just as a West Ham supporter, um, what are sort of your fondest memories of of being a Hammer? Oh well, that's that's a great question. Some of them are very recent, actually. So, so last season, I was lucky enough to go to um, our away leg in the Europa League in Seville, which, you know, at the time it felt like well, this is once in a lifetime. It was the first time we'd done it since 1981, um, and the level of excitement among the the fan base was just off the scale we had a, we had a brilliant time everybody was really well behaved and yeah we 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 lost the game but it almost didn't matter we were competitive with Seville who who you know used to win the tournament every year so so I think I'd flag that uh, I think the other thing I'd flag are are some of the players over the years who I've had the the privilege of watching I guess the one I'd go to is Decanio um, and watching Di Canio play in the late 90s, the early 2000s was just absolutely awesome. I, I remember a game against Bradford that we won 5-4. Uh, he had three penalties de- denied. He sat down in the middle of the pitch and refused to play for a while. And then he came back and won us the game. He was, <laughs> you know, he was frustrating, but he was the greatest talent I've ever seen on live on a football pitch, I yeah. think. was a fantastic player. I mean, my West Ham memories for what they're worth um, was Frank Lampard Sr. Uh, scoring, I think, the only goal he ever scored against Everton. And in running around the corner flag afterwards, yeah. yeah. At Allen uh, Road, so broke my heart. And I think that was the year where Brookings header. I mean, again, Trevor Brookings scoring a header yeah. at Wembley to win them the cup. I remember that well. And then the best West Ham team I saw uh, from memory was when Cotty and Machaveni played up front and, and pushed Liverpool and Everton quite hard that season. I think it was around 84. 85, 86. Yeah, yeah. We, we finished, I mean, it's etched in my memory because we yeah. finished third and it's yeah. our best, best yeah. ever finish. And it was, I mean, it was a great team to watch though. And, and those two up front, Cotty, Machaveni, we subsequently bought Tony Cossey from you. Um, I think he was better at West Ham than at Everton, to be fair. He did okay. Um, but West Ham always uh, one of the teams that I look out for the results because uh, they're just one of those clubs, aren't they, that they've got that reputation for playing football, the tradition of people like Bobby Moore, Jeff Hurst, Martin Peters, all those great players as well. It's a real old-fashioned, traditional uh, English club, isn't it? Really, I, I think so. Uh, but but we we worry about you know losing that because we've moved to the big stadium now. We've gone from you know the the wonders of Upton Park to to a sixty thousand bowl in in the middle of Stratford. Um, that is sometimes a bit 
lacking in atmosphere and sometimes takes us a bit away from our roots. But, you know, it's great to hear that you, Frank, and, and other people who love football still keep a bit of an eye out for West Ham and, and still think of us as one of the teams that, that try to play football and try to develop players. Yeah, for sure. Uh, listen, we can't end on football. Uh, because uh, it's not really what the podcast is about, even though I could talk football and politics all day. Final point I'll make then, CPT, big old organisation, as you said, you represent 95% of the bus industry sector. How do people get in touch with you if they want to have a conversation? So start off with our website, uh, cpt-uk.org. You'll find contact details for me and all of my management team on there. Any of us would be happy to to talk to to anybody in business about anything to do with buses, anything to do with coaches. Fantastic, Graham. It's been great to have you in the downtown den. And I'm sure we'll be speaking to you and meeting you at different events in the uh, the next over the next 12 months or so. Great talking to you, Frank. Thank you. Good stuff. Cheers, Graham. That was Graham Vidler. He's the chief executive of CPT. As he said there, you can contact them directly through the website or alternatively come to us here at Downtown in Business and we'll make the introduction for you. Uh, that's it from us on the podcast. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with another Meet the Partner. Hi, this is Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business. And I want to tell you about a fabulous conference that we're hosting on Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023. In association with Sedulo Group, BDP and VSI Executive Education, we'll be hosting a one-day event, Business of Sport, at the home of Lancashire Cricket Club during the international football break in the autumn. The conference will attract up to 200 delegates from sports organisations, private sector companies and public sector agencies from across the country. Our confirmed speakers so far include Gary Neville, the ex-Manchester United and England footballer turned pundit and entrepreneur. Sir Howard Bernstein, former Chief Exec of Manchester City Council, part of the city's Commonwealth Games delivery and legacy team. The Chief Executive of Women in Football, Yvonne Harrison. GB Javelin champion and Olympic medalist Goldie Sayers, the chief exec of FC United, Natalie Atkinson, and the chair of the Rugby League World Cup, Chris Brindley. Tickets are available now. Go to downtowninbusiness.com. You'll find out all the information in the events section of our website. More speakers to be announced shortly, but it is going to be a fantastic day. That's Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023, Downtown in Business's Business of Sport Conference.